Thank you, Devin, Angela, and Jonathan. That is awesome. Uh, love that song. Where else can we go? That's exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning, is where else do people go to hear the word of Christ? Uh, of course, that is taken from a passage in John chapter 6. Jesus has been uh, out preaching as usual, and for the first time, yeah, that's, many of us feel that way. <laughs> I was just with my grandson all about Thursday, Friday, and it, I, I heard that screaming a lot. But anyway, uh, it was amazing. Love it. Um, Jesus was uh, telling the people that he had come not just to heal and cast out demons and to feed them, but that he had come to die on the cross for them. And the people melted away. Those huge crowds became almost nothing in a matter of moments. And the story goes that Jesus is walking down the country road and probably feeling somewhat discouraged. But he turns and he looks and his men are following, his disciples. And Jesus asks them, why are you still with me? And Peter responds, where else would we go, Lord? Where else would we go to hear the words of life? And that is so true. That is so important to what we're about as a church and as individual Christians. We have the words of life. The world may seek to compete with us by doing fun things, by doing group things, by uh, trying to provide meaning to this crazy world. But there's only one place that you can really go to hear the words of life. And that is a place where the word is taught, where the word is preached, as the song said and where his people live out the truth of those words on a daily basis. Uh, we have something that the world can never compete with. They may not know it, but that's what we're about, and that's so exciting. Let's pray this morning as we start our time in the Word. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do and are the Word of life. You give us that which no one else can understand or appreciate unless they come humbly openly to hear from you father you are the word and you've given us life as we gather now to look at what uh, the apostle paul has written we pray that you would help us for the moment to clear our minds and our souls of all the things that we're doing in our lives of all the pressures of all the things that are good and the things that are stressful and i pray lord that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, help our minds and our hearts to focus on you. I pray, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for grace and mercy upon these people. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning is 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 1, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read that, beginning in verse 2. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica. Here we go. We give thanks to God always for of, you, for of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, and the we there is Paul and those who are working with him, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. For not only has the, excuse me, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We've been talking in our series about discipleship. Uh, we started off a couple of weeks ago talking about the vision on our Vision Sunday. Pastor Doug had us all together as one congregation, and we kind of laid out the pathway of discipleship. How do we help not only ourselves, but others become more like Christ? How do we move people along so that they go from having heard the gospel, having made the decision to give their life to Christ, to not just staying stagnant and in one place, but to move them along so that they can become part of the process. We want them eventually to become, and we want all of us to become, people who are involved in discipling. We want to be disciple makers. We want to create disciple makers, people who will turn around, having heard from us and seen in our life and in our example, what it means to walk with Christ, and thus desire to share that with people that they know are lost that they know need something in their life, and they themselves will turn around and do the same for others. And so we should have, if we do this correctly, an unending, unbroken chain of witnessing to the miraculous power, to the strength of living for Christ in a world that is lost in darkness. And we do this. We do this locally. We do this globally. We do this for people who come from around the world to Iowa City. We'll do it with anybody. We need to be about the act of discipling. That is, by very definition, what the church is. We are a great commission church. Uh, no place in Scripture will you see that we are called just to uh, consume the Word or the knowledge of the Word and thus sit on it and enjoy it and somehow be edified by great study. That is a temptation. I have succumbed to that many times myself. But that is not the end game. The end game should be, I want to help others come to the same place. And together, hand in hand, we will lead our community to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to living their lives in the fulfillment of what he has given us in that great commission, to go make disciples, right? So that's what we're about. So this passage today, the last week we looked at is what is a disciple? Who's eligible for that discipleship? And by the way, we did talk about that distinctive between those who just merely accept Christ, raise their hand, walk an aisle, somehow indicate through prayer that they've received Jesus, that they're acting in faith to ask Jesus to be their savior. There is that, and that is a very necessary step. But unfortunately, there are too many of us I would probably say the great majority of Christians who populate churches stay in that condition for the rest of their lives. When you do that, it's much too easy, much too easy 
to get bored with Christianity, to go to church because you have to, because it's a ritual, rather than because it gives life to you. Because you see, you're not living it. You're not practicing it. It would be much like uh, I used to be on swim team, believe it or not, but when you go to swim practice, if all you did is hear the coach talk about, well, the best way to do a butterfly stroke is thus, and I want you all to sit there in your pews, and I want you to rotate your arms, right? You're going to do the butterfly stroke. You've seen it in the Olympics. That's great. That's wonderful. It's quite another thing to get in the water and do it. You'll find it exhausting. Uh, probably the fastest, yet the most uh, muscle-consuming stroke there is. Very few people can do it. But with proper training, with practice, you'll find yourself butterflying with the best of them. That's the way it is with Christianity. You can't just receive Christ as your Savior and go to church and hear the Word taught and hear examples through testimony of how people are walking with Christ and challenging you to do the same. You have to get out there and do it. It's a whole other thing. When you put yourself on the line for the gospel, when the people that you work with, the people that are in your family, understand you to say, there's something different about me. Man, what wonderful times in our lives when we have that opportunity. And how great is it when we have that opportunity fulfilled by seeing it come alive in someone else. That's where Paul's at. So he's saying here in 1 Thessalonians, as we look at that, first of all, he starts off with almost a Trinitarian call to his people. We see the Father, we see the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit all brought front and center. He says, we give thanks to whom? To God. We give thanks to God, always. Not just some of the time, but always, for all of you in this church. God's sovereign, superintending grace is evident in everything that we do with you. You reflect the Father. You're the Imagio Dei. You're the walking image of God, and we're so thankful for you. We give God thanks for you always, continuing to in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father, just like Jesus did. If you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus is constantly about prayer. He prays in the morning, he prays during the day, he prays late at night, after the busiest, most uh, harried day of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels, what do we see Jesus do? He retreats off by himself to pray. Prayer is at the basis of discipleship. So he's praying to the Father. Father, tell me who I should be discipling. Tell me how I should do the discipling. Just please superintend over everything that I'm doing in your name. Anything that I'm not doing that is not of you, eliminate it from my life. Secondly, we see the Son. He says, Father, do this, your work of faith and labor we recognize of love and steadfast hope, who? In our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus set the standard. Jesus modeled how to do discipleship. And Paul says what we're doing with the Thessalonians, we are doing it because we've seen it in Christ. He is the model for discipleship. And then the third member of the Godhead comes into view because he says that, uh, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, these people have grown in Christ. How? Through the Spirit. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we come to discipleship, we have to understand that all three members of the Godhead are deeply involved in this per, uh, opportunity. Now, hopefully you brought 
or you grab from the front there a little sheet of paper that's going to help you. Uh, Zion and I were talking about this last couple days. We recognize that how to do discipleship, that's what we're into today. How do I disciple? can be a little confusing, a little front-loaded, if you will, and I hope to make it simple by helping you follow along as I go. You don't have to write anything in. I just want you to know where I'm going today. So if you look along the top line there, we're going to look at the life of Paul. If our scripture passage today is 1 Thessalonians, a letter from Paul to the Thessalonican church, we have to understand that this man Paul is saying, look at me, imitate me. If you read down there a little bit further, he says uh, in verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Awesome. That is great. Uh, For you received the word in much affliction and so forth. Uh, That's the goal of discipleship, imitation. So how did Paul become a discipler? That's a legitimate question. What do we know about Paul? Well, if you want to turn back in your Bibles a little further to Acts chapter 9, we get some insight on this. Acts chapter 9, of course, is the conversion of Saul, the rabbi. If you remember a little bit of Paul's original story, his name used to be Saul. He was a highly trained uh, Pharisee in his own right, uh, being trained in one of the most recognized intellectual scholars of his day. Um, He was very privileged to have that kind of education. In a sense, he kind of went to the Harvard of rabbinical schools. Uh, This is something that he took great pride in. He had great learning in. Uh, He is recognized as being one of the geniuses of the ancient world, not just by Christians, but by many, because of his ability to bring an uh, apologetic argument for what he believed in. And Saul carried such conviction about the Jewish beliefs and faiths that he took the Christian uprising, this belief in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, as God, as a threat to his monotheistic system of belief. And he decided it was upon him to make sure that it was extinguished. He didn't like it. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 9 in the book of Acts, it says, but Saul, still breathing threats, fire breathing, He was a hot-tempered person. Uh, Breathing threats and murder. Now, remember, Luke is writing this. (laughs) So they were living in fear of this man, and it comes across so loud and clear. Against the disciples of the Lord. Who's he breathing threats and murder against? The disciples. Uh, We can't lose sight of this fact. As much as we talk about the how-tos, almost making it like a scientific formula, you put a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and pretty soon you'll be discipling others, and you'll just be, you know, skipping down the primrose path. This is not always the way it happens. There is opposition to your beliefs. If you haven't experienced that yet in present-day American culture, then I'm suggesting that perhaps you're not doing it correctly. If we really live out the convictions of our faith, there are going to be those who feel very threatened by what you say in your own families, in your own community, in your pe- amongst people who used to be your friends. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. 
he feels like, okay, I've, I've pretty much stomped on all the Christians that I can get my hands on in the Jerusalem area. I'm going to take this mission north to Damascus, right? So that if he's found any belonging to the way, as they were pejoratively called, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's going to arrest them, bring them there. And what do they do with Christians that they catch in Jerusalem, especially outspoken ones, ones willing to be a testimony to Jesus Christ? They very easily can find themselves dead, just like their master, Jesus. So now as he goes along his way, he approaches Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is the conversion story of Saul. Now, that sounds like a very explanatory set of verses, but it really doesn't tell us a whole lot. Other than the fact that Paul, he himself, who was arresting others, is here arrested on the road to Damascus by a bright light, by the sound of God's voice, and, and Saul has no choice but to listen. And just in case that wasn't enough, we're told that he loses his eyesight in this experience. Now, how long does this take? What all objective knowledge was downloaded into Saul at this point about Jesus? You remember, it's quite a different experience from that of the other apostles who were called in the Sea of Galilee area, the Galilean region, one of the most religious areas of all of Israel, men who were raised also in the synagogue school system, but Jesus had an opportunity to come to them and work with them and invest his life in them for three-some years, right? This, this experience for Saul perhaps was in a moment, but we don't think it took that long, but it got Saul's attention. And Saul, at that moment, decided to give his life to Christ. I, you can't think that through deep enough. You're not going to be wasting your time if you try to think, what in the world must that experience have been like? This man who was so educated, so brilliant, such an apologist for the Jewish faith, in a second encounters God, and his whole life has changed forever. His name changes from Saul to Paul, his purpose changes from persecuting Christians to being a Christian. He gets all of a sudden on the opposite side of the wall from where he was, spiritually speaking. It makes an impact. Now, let's talk about how he gets disciples. So if you're looking along the top of your chart there, we look at Paul uh, in that left part of the upper chart. He's killing Christians, and then God prepares his mind and his heart. You see, in discipleship, we would call that, that is the curious phase. Everybody that we encounter who doesn't know Christ, we would put in that curious category. Somebody who is asking questions, somebody who wants to know more about why it is that you believe. Who's curious in your life today? Who do you know that would love to sit down and get some questions answered on who is this God that you worship? When my brother and I became believers, we came home to my grandma's house in Eagle Grove. The whole family was gathered, not for that reason, but they were there for just a usual fa family thing. My mom had uh, four brothers, uh, one sister, and they loved to be together. And we came in the door, high schoolers, full of zeal, enthusiasm. 
we had had our own, so to speak, Damascus Road conversion experience. And we started sharing our faith. We didn't care who was listening, but we started telling everybody, we're Christians. And by implication, it sounded like we were saying, and you are not. Didn't set well with my uncles especially. We loved each other. Uh, my uncles, to me, were like fathers because I didn't have a dad. And we had always been so close. And here I was introducing something into the conversation that actually separated us. And what's more, these... 40 to 50 year old men were being told by teenagers that you don't know as much about the eternal truth of life as we know. So they asked us questions. They wanted to know what we knew. We started going through the little bit of scripture that we understood. One aunt left the room. One uncle kind of yelled at us and walked away. And this opposition didn't stop. I wish I could tell you that we had a great salvation time that my uncles all knelt by the couch in the living room of my grandma's house and prayed to receive Christ, but that wasn't the case. Maybe we didn't do it right. Maybe we were too zealous. I really don't think so. I think any time that you bring the word, when you bring your personal testimony to the curious, they are confronted with the claims of Christ, and they have to decide what they're going to do with them. It was a, an amazing time in our lives. So Paul was the curious. This man had heard the testimony of the church before. Those people that he arrested, I no doubt have that they probably told Paul why they as former Jews were now believers in Jesus Christ. And he chose not to accept them. But on that road to Damascus, he had no choice. He had no choice but to listen to the voice of God. And now... He was blind. It took something probably of that nature in his life to get him to pay attention. The curious. Somebody walks in the door of a church, somebody comes into your life, they want to know what's going on. They want to know, what's this all about? Why are you people here? What animates you? It's a preparation time. They have to learn the basics of why we believe. And then Paul, as it says in verse 10 of chapter 9, now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, notice who he is. He's a disciple. This man has already been discipled. Uh, it would be fascinating to know who discipled Ananias. Which of the 12 went north and possibly impacted him? Or what convert from Jerusalem who had been discipled by one of the 12 went north. But nevertheless, what we have is a finished disciple. He's given that title. He's someone who has been through the process of discipleship, and he lives in Damascus, the very town that Saul had been sent to by the leaders of the Jerusalem temple to persecute the Christians. They knew that Saul was coming, and I'm sure it filled their hearts with dread. But let's get back to our story, verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
This is going to be Paul's entry point into being disciples. First, he's curious. Now he's convinced, as you see the word along the bottom of that section. He's ready for discipling. We have people all the time that come into our fellowship who are convinced people. They are Christians, but they've never taken those next steps. Perhaps you feel that's where you're at this morning. Who's discipled you? Who's moved you along that continuum? Who's taking you by example, by teaching, by investment to be more like Christ? And so what we get is a picture here of Saul, blind, laying there in this house at a man named Judas. We're really not told much about how he got there other than he was led there to the enemy's house in Saul's, the old Saul's mind. And there he's praying in a house on the street called Straight. And Ananias is called by God to come there and minister to him, to disciple him. Are you for real, Lord? That's basically what he's going to say. Uh, God, do you know who this guy is? <laughs> but Ananias answers, it says in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests uh, to bind all those who call on your name. Are you insane? I'm not going to do this. You ever been frightened to share your faith? You ever been frightened to come along to somebody who may really be in that curious category? But it's going to cost you something if you open your mouth. It's going to cost you maybe your position at your, your job. It could cost you a friend. It's a risk. It's a dare. And yet we need to listen to God, not to our hearts. We need to ask the Father, just like Jesus did, who? Who am I supposed to take this word to? Who am I supposed to invest my life in? What if they don't accept me? Now, I doubt if any of us know anybody that is going to arrest us on the spot if we proclaim publicly that we're a believer in Jesus Christ. We're not in the same position that Ananias was in. But what is it that we are fearing? What is it that keeps us from being bold in our testimony for Christ? Sometimes it's love, actually. We love somebody so much that we can't imagine our life without them, yet we fear that if we share with them, what it really means to walk with Christ, that this relationship will be severely impaired, that we'll lose them. But are we listening to God? Do we really know what would happen until we do it? Ananias argues with God, how can I do this? You've heard about all the evil he was going to do, and he's here to arrest people. But the Lord says to him in verse 15, go, it's in the imperative. It's a command. It's not a choice. He's not equivocating. He's not saying, Ananias, I understand. Well, let's do this. Why don't you just uh, kind of hang around that street called Straight, be outside of Judas's house, get to know Saul a little bit, bring him some food, bring him some water, minister to him gently, try to help him understand where he's at, and maybe, just maybe, you know, this will turn. No, he says, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I can't help but think 
that Luke, writing this, can write this so boldly because he knows the truth of this. Remember, Luke was the one that was one of Paul's consorts. He was one of those that traveled the world with uh, Paul and witnessed the gospel going to almost every nation of his day, at least in the Mediterranean area. So yeah, he's the one that God has called to do this. Ananias at this point, though, had no idea who Saul really was or who he might become. But God tells him, this is the man. So Ananias comes in, lays hands on him, prays for him, and it says immediately Saul's eyesight is restored, like huge scales are falling off of his face. If you drop down to verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regains his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. Wow. Beginning of Paul's discipleship. It's a miraculous happening. It's sovereignly instructed. It has the power of Christ in it and the Holy Spirit in it. And then it says, don't stop there in the story. Right down to that next paragraph. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. His discipleship experience continues. If you're looking along the top, there you go. He's in the curious, he's in the convinced, he's with Ananias, he's with the disciples at Damascus. And even though he's so well-educated and so smart, he's going to take instruction from those who've walked in Christ longer than he has. We're told elsewhere that those some days, he's actually, he spends about three years going about doing some ministry, but also receiving instruction in Arabia. And we don't know exactly where Arabia is. We think today, well, it must be Saudi Arabia, but probably it's more of a northern designation in that Damascus area. Paul goes, goes along, and he's there for three years. I believe that, personally, that he's getting instruction. He's learning to flesh out how his old beliefs mesh with his new beliefs. Christ is the fulfillment of the law, after all. It's not like he's contrary to the Old Testament teachings that Paul had, but it takes a while for all of that to sink in, for him to tighten up his theology, so to speak. We see this happen with many of the people in the New Testament. They, they understand the Old Testament. John the Baptist understood it. Apollos understood it. But they needed further training, further understanding. And during this period of time, this discipleship goes to a new level. It's an equipping time. It's a committed time. If you look down to committed in that lower left corner, as a definition, it's a time of examination of Scripture where we begin to get into the Word, maybe like we never have before. It's a time of understanding the role of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a time in which we begin to do our rudimentary witnessing. Uh, I think of some of the times that I had opportunities to share the gospel with people, and I look back on it and I cringe because my theology was so bad, or at least it was so shallow. My typical approach would have been do you need an eternal friend? Do you want somebody who will be, you know, in your corner the rest of your life? Do you want someone who will love you? It had very little to do with, you know, propitiation or atonement or whatever. It was just simply me sharing what I discovered about Jesus. And it's a time that we listen to the Holy Spirit. Somebody has to teach us to how to listen. That as believers in Christ, we have the ability to be quiet before him and to have the Holy Spirit give us instruction on what we should do, how we should live our life, whom we should marry, what kind of finances we should have, 
how we can live by faith. It's an equipping time. We may have a misunderstanding of discipleship at times. I think too often when we teach on discipleship, we think of it as being a vertical structure. You know, so-and-so discipled him, he discipled him. It's almost like a family tree. Who discipled you, discipled you, discipled you? But in reality, discipleship is much more lateral, right? Much more horizontal. What we have here instead is that there's different people that plug into our lives at different times just when we need them by the sovereignty of God. I had this person that started off with my brother. He led me to the Lord. He taught me the power of prayer. I had Ion's brother, one of my best friends, come in and teach me about morality, what a Christian should and shouldn't do. I had older men that were running our youth program that spoke into my life, sometimes with great correction. As I was preparing this, I was thinking of a good friend I had when I was in the pastorate in Nebraska who came alongside of me and spoke words that were hard, telling me how I needed to change. And at the time, I was so resentful, like, who do you think you are? But in fact, now that I look back upon it, I say, God, thank you. Thank you that Barry loved me enough to tell me where I was going wrong, how that by what I was saying and doing was really eliminating so many different people from hearing the gospel for a really silly reason. There are people that speak into your life. Some people are by attraction. You don't really get to spend a ton of time with them, but you can tell by the way they share the word, by the way they love others, by the things they do in acts of service, that you're saying, wow, I don't do that. I need to do that. I need to come along people and be a witness for Christ. Some people have the gift of giving. Wow, I've had different people in my life teach me this is what you need to do to help meet the needs of others, to be generous, to give of what you have, sometimes to give of what you don't have, because the cause of Christ is just that important. We move along on that spectrum with different people plugging into us. The only time it gets dangerous is when that ceases, when we don't have anybody talking into us, because we've made it loud and clear. We really aren't open to that. I don't want to grow more. How did you learn to be a great parent, a great spouse? How, how, how did I learn to be a husband? I didn't have a dad that taught me. No one discipled me in my home. I learned it from others. God will bring those people into your life during that committed phase. And then lastly, Paul was commissioned. If you look along the top again, in that he says that you, Thessalonians, you imitated me and the others and Jesus Christ. Jesus took those 12 men and he lived the life for them. If you take Jesus' life and you split it into two 18-month periods, his three years of ministry split into two 18 months, that first 18 months he plugs into his men, he moves them from curious to convinced to committed. He engages them, he evangelizes them, he equips them. They're ready to go. Those are the four E's we've been talking about, right? And then finally, in that second 18-month period, they're commissioned. Everything that you've seen me do, now you're ready to go and do. The difference is, I'm going to move from the front to the back. You're going to be up there. You're going to be preaching. You're going to be teaching. You're going to be the ones casting out demons. You're going to be the one meeting the needs of the people. And basically, I'm going to sit in back with a piece of straw in my mouth, and I'm going to be watching you laughing, right? No, he wouldn't do that. Uh, I would do that probably, but he wouldn't do that. 
But that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I want you to get out there and do it. And then it doesn't stop there, does it? Whoa. We get to the book of Acts. What happens? Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends upon these men, these 12, after three years of intense training, after a lifetime in synagogue training, and boom, the gospel takes off. God infuses them with everything that they have learned from Jesus. He says, I will bring it back to your mind, those words that he spoke, those actions that he did, through my Holy Spirit, and you will be able to do the same. Where do you fit today? Are you just curious? That's okay. Are you convinced? Have you given your life to Christ? And you've kind of been stalled there for a while? Are you equipped? Are you committed? Are you learning? Are you making your life open to being instructed from others? And not just instructed, like I said, we're not just telling people how to do the butterfly. We're getting in the water. Are you out there sharing your faith? Are you getting wet? And then we're commissioned. We begin to do ministries that God lays upon our hearts that are independent of the one that discipled us. That's really what happens in that multiplying stage of discipleship. Wow. And the thing is, I love with Ananias, what we should carry away as a principle from today is that the true discipler does discipleship, as I have in bold in that right-hand corner, no matter what. Doesn't matter the cost, doesn't matter to whom, we're ready to go. You see a need, you jump on it. You pray to the Father and say, how can I do this the best that I can? Each of you might have a different answer from the Lord. Doesn't mean we all do discipleship the same way. It doesn't mean that we all have the same burden and caring uh, in our hearts of whom needs to be discipled. It just means that because of our gifts, because of who we are, because of our station in life, because of the, what we do for a living, we're all going to have different spheres of influence and we have different people to disciple. But here's what, I, what concerns me, which if anything keeps me awake at night, it's this. Is there anyone else in that sphere with me? In other words, if I don't do it, who shall? So I ask you this morning as we close, who discipled you? Are you moving along the curious, the convinced, the committed, the commissioned? Is that who you are? Or are you stalled right now? Do you want to get off from standing still and do something meaningful for the Lord? Do you want to get in the water? Then find someone who's willing to disciple you. If you are discipled, let me ask you this. Who are you discipling? Who is it that you have taken alongside of you and you're walking that journey with them? There's many ways to get that done as well. If you'd like to talk more about that, I would love to talk to you about it this morning. We have other people in this church who do this excellently. They would also talk to you. So don't let yourself leave here and not be in the process. That's what God wants from us. The church does not exist for any other reason than to be disciplers. I know it's a bold statement, but that's the truth. We have to be disciples, and we have to turn around and make disciples. That's our calling. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. It's so powerful. I thank you for the example of Paul, though unique. Father, it really is quite similar in some ways for all of us. 
we've moved from being curious to giving our life to you and being convinced to desiring to be equipped when others speak into our lives and we're ready father to be commissioned to imitate those who have discipled us and be ready to disciple others bring if we don't have somebody lord bring them into our lives help us to see who's ready who we can move along and i ask this father in jesus name amen